Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong. But we're first. No Matt Trumpets today. But if you hang around until the end of the show, there will be a pre-recorded segment with Matt as part of our Meet the Panel segment. So if you want to hear me just being a bit nosy and intrusive on Matt Trumpets' life, then hang around till the end of the show. But I'm really, really excited because in the shed today, we have the darling of F1 Media, the only person full stop that I ever have on a tweet alert. I am absolutely delighted to be joined in the shed by Chris Medland. Hello, Chris. Hello, mate. How are you doing? Ah, oh, we're doing good. I'm. I'm trying. I'm hoping what you're going to do is revitalise my passion and energy for the upcoming F1 season. Okay, how do you want me to do that? Uh, with with with, <laughs> with with words and dance, please, Chris. If that's uh, the what dance, you... the dance will work on. Yeah. Um, I'm. I'm. I'm not quite there yet myself, to be honest. There's still too much from last year to sort out to before I can get too excited about this year. And and I wonder for for people professionally involved in Formula One whether the schedule is actually going to be something that is making people take a deep breath because the schedule from last season was already crazy. And looking ahead, it's not really going to get any better. No, and I think the the big one was before we get into the tale of woe of you know people that work in F1, but um, the. The timing of the final race being so close to Christmas. And then I stayed out in Abu Dhabi for the test, uh, the young driver test they did. And then suddenly it was, you know, I got home on Thursday. Friday was the FIA gala. So you had all the stuff kicking off after that. And suddenly your first day off, I think, was the Sunday. And it was six days till Christmas. So you had so much to cram in. It felt so stressful still. And Christmas ends and everyone's like, right, 2022, you ready for the new season? I'm like, no, it feels like <laughs> I've not stopped yet. So not... um, by the end of this month, definitely, uh, everyone, will be, everyone will be hyped. But this is the first time that I'm like, yeah, January can be as long as it wants. Yeah, and, uh, and, and which is why we really appreciate you 
jumping in on a, a Sunday evening uh, after your Sunday roast to come and speak to us. But whilst we're talking about schedules, uh, I've collected some some questions from our patrons. And the first one is related to that, which is from a Monsieur Kilometer. He says, which teams are actively planning or already using multiple shifts of engineers or mechanics to handle the marathon seasons that are, look to be the norm now? What effect will this have on other resources under the cost cap? And I guess, you know, this affects you guys as well. So how are they handling it? So I think some teams are doing a bit of rotation, but they don't do it too like high up the chain really, because they've got to be careful not to dilute. It's no, yeah, it's no offense to the kind of backups that they would bring in, but that they've tried to hire the best in certain positions uh, or at least get people working as well as possible in certain positions. And then you don't want to say, well, on that race we will be down a percent or two on our operations. So they basically try and compensate so i know talking to haas recently good to steiner and it was that if you did more than a certain number of races you were compensated a bit more uh, to try and make sure that everyone would do them right essentially so you could keep your your full team working and i think that is one good way of going about it uh, in the sense that it's that recognition a lot of people say they knew what they signed up for so they shouldn't complain but what they signed up for was different to what they're now getting like they signed up for 18 19 20 races even the newer people 2021 20, and you're saying to them, right now you're doing 23, you're doing triple headers, uh, and you know some of the travel schedules are brutal, then it doesn't take long for them to go, actually, this is maybe not what I thought it would be. Uh, but if they're good at their jobs, then the teams don't want to lose them. So uh, it's a balancing act because the teams want to keep them happy. Yeah. So therefore, you want to kind of say, okay, if you're, if you're getting burned out or you think this is too much, take a couple of races to work back at the factory or, or off, basically. But at the same time, then they're hurting themselves in terms of their competitive level. So uh, I think for most, it's a it's a financial incentive to try and say, look, you're still doing all the races, but um, we are acknowledging that you're having to work harder for them. I, I think what might happen naturally is that it becomes a, a younger person's game as well. And as people just, you know, become parents and then you have spousal and familial pressure that might start eking out. So but you know, perhaps you look at this in a generation's time, if this has become a norm, you then have a group of engineers who, this is what they signed up for, but it's a bit shocking for poor Derek. And is that what you think is happening? They're being told, look, we do need you. You're good. It's tough. But here's some extra money. Uh, and they have, they have to, I guess they either have to take it or leave it is the reality. Yeah, pretty much. And and some do. I can't remember who it was I was talking to, actually. I'm going to um, slightly out someone without outing them because I, I generally can't remember who it was. But um, there was a mechanic that said that they were likely to move to um, European Le Mans because they could get pretty much the same money or close to the same oh, money. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but for far less work now because you had the F1 experience. Um, and it it wasn't, I don't think it was like the overall salary was the same. I think, you know, F1 still pays best. But it was that the kind of, compared to the time away from home, the balance, uh, yeah. it was that race by race was probably better pay if you're in another series. Uh, so they were looking at that. And I think that's where Formula One's getting itself into a bit of trouble, basically. You know, if, if you can yeah. go and do eight races or 10 races in a year on 60% of the salary of an F1 mechanic, you're going to go do it pretty soon because you've got a much better uh, kind of work-life balance out of that and you still get to do racing. You know, your Formula One is not the only race series in the world. But the, pro- so, the problem is, it's, it's like if you are a professional entertainer, people assume because you love it and because it's competitive that you'll take less pay. I, I spent most of my career in the defence industry and there's a lot of the engineers are, are interchangeable between those industries and they kind of choose between the glamour, if you like, and the cool thing of doing racing or the pension and sensible money of, of going into defense and, and building airplanes and missiles and stuff. So yeah, I guess F1 kind of has them a little bit held hostage 
in the in that there's lots of people who would want to do that job. Yeah, absolutely. And there'll, there'll always be a high turnover, I think, in the sense yeah. of you'll never or you'll be very unlikely to run out of people to come and do the job. How well they'll be doing it is another matter, because if you have to bring in basically underqualified or you know too soon uh, in terms of people that might have done Formula 2 for a while, Formula 3, kind of gone through the ranks, maybe done some uh, stuff that was factory based and learned the ropes in the team, you know, that could be a path that's seven, eight, nine, ten years until they hit the F1 team. Instead, they're going to be needing them almost immediately because people are kind of doing a couple of years and going, all right, that's enough for me to hit that box. So uh, I think I think everyone does have to be careful in that sense. But the flip side is if it happens to every team, then the same it's the level, level will be the same yeah. everywhere. You know, that, that drop as such won't be noticeable because everybody will have it. So um, the smartest teams will probably be the ones that hire all the best people and, and split the races between them. You know, you can do a third of the season each or something, but that'll take a lot of logistics and a lot of cost. And with a cost cap, that's not realistic at the moment either. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's a small thing because for a lot of people, they, they do still love it. It's just that they keep getting asked to do that bit more, that bit more, that bit more uh, for the same money, essentially, uh, and less time at home. And it does reach a breaking point for people. Yeah. And I think they yeah. say yes each time until eventually they just say no. Yeah, so I mean, same money pro pro rata. Like they're not getting an effective pay rise per work, but hopefully they are still being paid for for their time. But what about the poor F one journos? No one's thinking about the likes of you and Uncle Joe. It's, it's going to be rough on you guys as well. It is travel wise. I'd say actually we're luckier, or some of us are certainly me as a freelancer, in that a lot of deals are done per race weekend you know there's a set amount of work someone wants to race um or you know if it's a monthly deal then that's more painful or, or an annual one that's more painful but yeah if it's uh if it's race by race then you are still getting compensated on top so the more races you do the more money you earn in that sense but again i've had it where there's a balancing act i've turned down work because it would tie me into definitely doing 23 or something like that and it mm. is it worth the sort of pain of not not being able to be home at certain times or um just you know the, the stress of even organizing that season let alone going and doing it um and with covid added as well which has been very very tricky so yeah yeah it's it's kind of that balance and um and you kind of got to pick it but yeah i'd say from a freelance point of view i've actually been fairly lucky and i think a few others would be similar that you can almost pick and choose a little bit more for, but for those that are that are full-time employees of somewhere for, for a lot of them it is tougher because in the same way that, you know, a mechanic or an engineer has it, you know, they're not getting paid more because there's more races. They're just, you know, they've got an annual salary and that's it. And they're told, well, you're going away from home for even longer. And for some, it's great. Some people genuinely, it's the best thing ever. You know, it's not everybody. Um, it's just that the ones that it is hurting, it's a bit unfair on if, if that isn't how they originally signed up and they're not being fairly compensated for it. Yeah, no, it's definitely rough for the people who who are having to face that change, and maybe you end up with, you know, a, a, not a, I don't want to say mercenary band, but people who who end up going, okay, this is going to be my life. It's five years, ten years. The money's good. It's glamorous. Then I'm going to settle a, settle down at home, and I can buy a house or whatever. Uh, but uh, what I'd I'd really like to know is is why, and I feel like the answer is going to be money. But why why are we doing so many races? Because it it's so many. And we saw it with football where there's, there's, is there even an off-season in football anymore? Do they take a break at any point? The F1 off-season is nearly non-existent. It's triple header after triple header after triple header. Why and is it good? 
Uh, so it might surprise you actually to know that it's because of money. Um, is it money? Yeah, yeah it's well, like, dang. On. Yeah. You, you, at the same time, you do get you know more races and more locations means the sport ideally grows. You know, it, there's more opportunities to be in the public conscience. So there is, you know, there, there is another angle to it in that sense. But the big thing it comes down to is money. Uh, and I, I'm pretty certain that if uh, you went to Liberty and you went, you can do 25 races and make $200 million, or you can do 15 races and make $300 million, they'll do 15 races. You know, it, that it's definitely, you know, that's the the main point. But they've, they've got shareholders to keep happy. There's there's a lot of people outside that you've got to think of as well. Yeah. Um, so there is a balance to be had. You know, we, we can moan internally, but externally, you know, maybe it's... Um, you'd have a different viewpoint if you're working for Liberty and thinking of those sure. aspects. So to make my, my question slightly less dumb, another <laughs> factor I was thinking was, well, the, clearly the Middle East is getting more involved in Formula One. They're putting a lot of money in and you wouldn't bet against them eventually owning Formula One. So then they want that their region to have more races. And so you've got Qatar, Saudi, you know, and, and you've got all these races that are, are coming into Formula One. So that does that make five? Five races in the Middle East? You've got Bahrain, Abu Dhabi. I mean, it depends. Are we, are we counting Baku? But then you've got, yeah, Saudi okay, and you've got um, Qatar as well. So yeah. you've got four. It's so, just that Bahrain seems to be on the calendar three times every year at the yeah, moment because of COVID. true. And we are starting actually with the Shakir layout, the Shakir layout for race uh, one. No? Yeah, so there's only one race in, in Bahrain this year and it's yeah. the normal layout. It's the normal uh, layout. And, okay, few. And then, okay. Yeah. And then it's straight to... Um, Je- uh, yeah, to Jeddah again. Okay, so Jeddah that we've just had, we go back to for the second race. Few because George Russell is quite good at that layout. I mean, I, I mean, I'm neutral. I don't mind. I don't mind which of the Mercedes drivers does better. <laughs> uh, so obviously, the Middle East they they now they have it. They'll have their, their big chunk of the F1 calendar, and we've almost been lucky from a scheduling point of view. A lot of the East Asian tracks have have dropped off the calendar during the pandemic. But when the likes of Singapore china and fingers crossed malaysia one day come on please uh go back onto the calendar you want to keep the heritage tracks in europe and then you want to expand into america i know liberty are very keen on that so money aside there's, there's a lot of tracks just to fit in yeah there's there's a lot of interest i mean that's that's a good thing like the fact yeah. that liberty are getting to add all these races is because there's so much interest and they're managing to try and find different ways of doing it like the miami kind of commercial plan is different to the Austin one and that sort of thing. And, and certainly very different to how much money just goes straight in the coffers from some of the Middle East tracks or, or even Singapore was a, a big, big payer. So it's, there's kind of, there is a balance there and having that spread and that reach across as much of the globe as possible uh, is definitely something that um, has to be taken into account and kind of accepted that, you know, it still will help grow the sport if, as long as you're giving a good product on top of that. But um, yeah. And I also think sometimes we give them a bit of a bad rep because you know, football's exactly the same. You know, FIFA are trying to look at having a World Cup every two years rather than every four, because they say. <laughs> yes. And the, the reason they give is because of how much money they can make from it. Yeah. And in one sense, you're like, well, that's understandable because you're a business and you go, well, yeah. we're missing out on all this money. Well, so I only I only watch football during during the World Cup. So they'll get me watching twice as often. So it's, it's sort of hard to turn that down. Mm. Uh, EJ points out, in our live chat, hello live chat, uh, Suzuka as well. We've not had Suzuka for ages, um, yeah. but but is it is it good from a sporting point of view? I guess that takes a, a big sort of second fiddle. But a lot of F one fans were experienced. I thinking I think a bit of F one fatigue. Perhaps we're not used to to that many races. Maybe we'll adjust to it. Maybe we'll get used to it. Or maybe you'll get driver uh, fans that only tune in for certain Grand Prix instead of all 16. I mean, me, I, I'm a, an addict, so I will be watching every single minute of every available session on TV. But some people might end up picking and choosing. 
Well, I think, yeah, part of it is you've got to admit, even for fans, like it's a big sacrifice to give up every other Sunday or more than every other Sunday and say mm. to your, your family, if you've got family or friends or whatever, no, I can't do anything this Sunday afternoon as a race on. And yeah. you're always saying that essentially. Or you might lose them from qualifying because they say, look, I can't justify every weekend having something in the middle of it that I need to do. So I'll only watch the races. And and yeah, you might see that wane slightly, but I think the hope from F1 side is, but then hopefully you still pick up more people who can watch it at that time. And, and overall, the numbers are going to go up, even if you get a drop of you know 5% viewing figures yeah. on each race, but you've got an extra race or two, that's still hundreds of millions more people watching. So uh, yeah, that, that balance, I think, is one that at the moment they still think they're the right side of. But it will be interesting to see if there's a notable decline in terms of, how regularly people are watching or if, yeah. if each race individually is slightly lower as a viewing figure because there's so many. Yeah, and then it'll just whether be, they yeah. respond. It would just become like a maths equation then, right? Where's the balance? Fridays is okay because, I mean, for years now, even when I w- wasn't self-employed, I'd be watching or listening to Friday practice when I was supposed to be working. I can still I can still manage that. And and But at this point now, I'm having to skip a lot of the qualifyings and just, you know, watch them in bed once all family stuff is done and out of the way. So you're absolutely right. You know, we, we are going to have to make some, some compromises if it keeps increasing. And right, uh, let's get to some of the patron questions. In fact, before I do, there's, there's a lot of varied patron questions about a variety of different subjects. But I do want to address the elephant in the room. And whilst I don't want to rehash the debate over the outrageously wrong call in Abu Dhabi, I am curious about how you have taken Knowlesgate. And for the non-UK viewers and listeners, you might have noticed a lot of F1 journalists being very vocal about Abu Dhabi at the moment or defending previous positions about Abu Dhabi. And it's because a, a, a TV personality, Nick Knowles in the UK from a DIY show, basically used his massive Twitter account, you know, compared to F1 journals generally, to just go on a massive rampage, Call basically called all of you lot out for, for not doing your jobs and for not calling for the blood of the FIA. And he went on a sustained Twitter attack for weeks. And, and I felt actually the stress of that some of the journos felt. Uh, your, your buddy Nate Saunders there, people are attacking him. Nice Nate. And he's like, but I did write all these articles. Here's links to all the articles. And that still didn't stop the vitriol that ended up getting put at the F1 media. And I feel like they want you to call for blood. And if you don't, you're an untrustworthy and paid shill. And I I don't know if you mind talking about it, but that balance between reporting well, but also just crapping on your own lawn is is a difficult one when you're following a, a governing body, one governing body, and that's all your job is is following around that organization it's the way you do it as well well first with the nick Knowles thing uh he came out <laughs> and he had a real go at, at originally it was at sky essentially or anyone employed by f1 uh and so someone like yeah. will buxton got um tagged in it and i'm thinking surely anyone with half a brain goes but he is employed by formula one so it's yes. always gonna be limited what he can say and, and like ah, i don't yes. mind him saying okay we can't take what you say and, and therefore assume that that's all like the whole picture but you can't have a go at him for not giving you if that makes sense, because of what his role is. Sky more so, you, you can. Um, but Nick Knowles actually never tagged in any of the, like, the written media as such. I think right. maybe one or two, but not many. It just seemed to be that the followers would then go, yeah, yeah. they're all rubbish. Yeah. I got tagged in further down his first rant by some fan, and he then replied, Nick Knowles, in, in general to the whole thing, but it meant I was just added as a tag <laughs> to this list of journals. I'm like, he, he didn't call me out, but someone else has made it look like he did. Yeah. And then 
later, um, Luke Smith from Autosport made yes. a very good point because somebody replied to a Nick Knowles tweet saying, oh, what, you know, where was the reporting of what the drivers had to say afterwards? Like you never saw any of these quotes and like screenshots of, um, or like, you know, their own typings of Ricardo saying that it was pretty effed up and this sort of thing. And, and Luke was like, totally incorrect. First story we ran on the Sunday night after the race, here's a link to it. And Nick Knowles replied being like, oh, I, you know, I need to make clear that I think the magazines and the online websites and stuff have done a brilliant job. They're really doing their job. It's the TV personalities that I'm after. But that didn't matter. Like you still were getting caught up in it. So fans just kind of just, they, they use one paintbrush and go, F1 media is everybody. Therefore, you're all in for hate. And yeah, I had it. I, had, uh, I did a piece, comment piece about a week ago. Um, basically because I spoke to a few teams at the start of last week and found they'd had nothing direct yet from the FIA and they were starting to get a bit like, okay, we mm. should know what's happening and when. Uh, they really need to be saying and explaining it. Uh, and I, I totally agreed. I was like, they, they can't, they couldn't have a, they weren't in a position to sit there quietly and go, well, we'll just do our job quietly and then we'll tell everyone the outcome. Yeah. There's so much riding on it. They need to explain to people what's going on and how they're going to do it, even if there's no substance. Uh, they just had to open that line of communication and uh, when I ran that piece, one of the replies was, you know, why did it take Nick Knowles? You know, suddenly Nick Knowles uh, like starts having to go at you yeah. and you finally speak up. And I was like, incorrect, and listed the same like Nate did. Yeah. Listed all the articles that have covered it before. And for most people, they replied to that and like, yeah, you know, don't worry about it. Like, people shouldn't be coming after you. But the same person still were like, nope, definitely correct. And I'm like, I've got, I've just <laughs> given you the proof. So sometimes a lot of it has been yeah. argument for argument's sake with some, um, I've noticed. But uh, the big thing was, from from my point of view you kind of made the points originally like on a sunday night when the race happened it was it happened very quickly you didn't know the appeal process how how it was going to go down um it was taking a little while to a report on what was happening in terms of at the track in race control when merck appealed and had the hearings yeah. but then once you got the result of that it was 1 a.m and you start looking through the regs to try and work out you know, was this definitely very wrong or was it just yes. a interpretation sorry, or what? Sorry, you're talking, sorry. No, but, it, no, but <laughs> it, it, you know, it turns out it was. But at that point, you're like, you're, A, you start to doubt yourself that early in the morning. But B, you're going, okay, so I think the way I read the rules, that shouldn't have happened. But the way the stewards have just said it is that this means, you know, um, what was it, all doesn't mean any or any doesn't oh, mean all, that sort yeah. of thing. And you're just like, semantics are now coming into play that clearly aren't what it references. But then everyone's gone home, so you can't go and call anyone else out on it. You can only say what you've said. Then we had all the appeals process, so you followed that. Uh, and once that then was ended by Mercedes, that was when it was kind of clear where we were at in the whole situation. And you could say, no, this is this is mm. not right. But then it was a week before Christmas. So you've done a couple of follow-up articles saying this isn't right. They need to get this sorted. You've done all the reaction from the different teams and drivers. And then there's nobody else to speak to. Like They've all gone off for Christmas holidays. And that's everyone, including the FIA, who... Let's be honest, it's essentially one man or, or race control's decision uh, that is the problem. But then it's the FIA itself that's going to mark its own homework, which, which is also a problem. But those people that have to do that, everyone else working in the FIA, understandably, after what was such an intense year of racing in COVID, had time off booked. You know, they, they, were, they were going, it's for some people, you know, they're going to see parents the first time in a couple of years. Yeah. Like the, the, the head of comms um, from F1's point of view was... Um, trying to get himself to South Africa to see his parents for the first time in two years. And it looked like he wasn't going to be able to because of Omicron. And I genuinely felt sorry for the guy, like massively. But then people are having to go at us for not then chasing like or hounding them. It's like, well, I, I've asked and they've said that there's nothing we can tell you right now. We've got to wait for this, this detailed analysis to start happening. So you're like, yeah. okay, but you still give your opinion. But yeah, I got the feeling that a lot of fans on social media want us basically outside the doors, like hammering them down. And I don't mind this whole thing of when they say crappy on the lawn, not at all. Like if, if they've done wrong, 
like if the FIA do wrong, same if F1 itself does wrong, you call it out. Absolutely. At the same time, though, when I think they do something right, I'll say I think they've done something right. Uh, and the, the, the problem I had was there's a way to go about it. Like if I'm unhappy with someone, the way, this is, this is a, a quite a morbid way of putting it. But I was like, basically, if, if you're about to miss a train because it's pulling out of the station and you want it to be on it and it's pulled out a bit early. So you're in the right. You got there on time. You don't like go and stand on the track and put your hand up and be like, you got to stop for me because I'm coming on. <laughs> yeah. Like you're going to lose that battle. So you have to basically think, right, how do I actually make my point here? You know, what are the lines of communication that are open? Yeah. What are the channels I can go down? Same thing with the FIA. Like it was, you've got to keep asking the questions. We've got to ask for as much insight as possible, but there's, you, you can't just go kicking and screaming because it'll get nowhere. And there, I, rarely say this but we are professionals so we have to maintain a professionalism yeah. for the way we go about this to try and find out what really went on you can't start don't name that, calling and kicking well, yeah, off or, and, or just yeah. yeah just sit there being like uh yeah well ha- what however some of the fans wanted it done you can't go crazy uh, and and throw an explosive in there and say like tell us everything like it's just not the way that it works you've got to be more professional about it so that's the way we i i feel that a lot of people were trying to work and they then got their own backs up because they got uh, called out for essentially trying to do their jobs in like uh, just a methodical way. So, so where are we, where are we now would be my, my question, because obviously we got to wait for Sue Gray's report. Uh, yeah. No, we've got to wait for the FIA report now. And it's, it's a new president as well, which is really interesting. And, and from what I've heard from him, if you were hoping for, a new broom and a completely new way of doing things. I, I think you might be disappointed. This gentleman seems very much in, in line with old FIA. He seems very much like, like John Tott and he seems an authority figure that is a continuation vote for, for me from what I'm, I'm seeing. So I, 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 if, not, if I'm wrong, I'd, I'd love to hear about it because he had made some pledges about grassroots motorsport as well, which I, I really hope he can follow through on. So he's now coming to the job, and the first thing he's got to do is probably deal with the most controversial referee call in F1 history, since 94 at least. And so I guess the question is, how do you see that going down? Can Michael Massey survive in his role as well? Uh, in terms of how I see it going down, I, yeah, I do feel sorry for um, Ben Soliem because he gets the job, he's given mm. the keys at the end of that Hospital week. Hospital pass, right? isn't it? Yeah, all, all Todd's done is gone. We should analyse this, do a detailed analysis. Great, that's me with a great recommendation. Right. I'm out. See you later. Uh, there's someone else will oversee all that now and deal with the fallout. And look, it's you know, Todd didn't make that call, or as far as we know, you know, we, you know, we'll find out if he had uh, any influence in terms of what he wanted the way racing to be handled over this season or at any stage. If there's anything that anyone had said mm. that might have all all come together for this to have happened, but for yeah, Todd, like he, I think he was probably a bit hurt that the what should have been his grand departure was completely overshadowed by what had gone on in Abu Dhabi, but he did get to walk away from it. And now it is Ben Swilliam's problem and it's a big problem. So yeah, I feel from a bit because he's also then got to, uh, you know, he was focusing on campaigning and lobbying and winning the election as soon as it's done. And again, straight into Christmas and new year when a lot of people are off. So he didn't have long to then just even get used to where he's going in any of the FAA buildings, like as the president, let alone sort this problem out. So I can understand the delay. Um, I wouldn't say he's the continuation. I think Graham Stoker would have been a continuation um, because he had worked with Todd uh, and he was looking to, I did an interview with Stoker before the election and he said that he didn't buy into the approach that everything needs changing. He's like, things need improving on, but there's a lot of foundations that have been laid that are good. Uh, and I think Ben Saliem hopefully won't 
change everything because it, essentially over the four-year term if you want to change everything within a corporation that big you're just not going to get through it all so uh, nothing actually will improve at all it'll, it'll get worse before it gets better so um i think there will be some stuff that stays the same but i think there'll be some other bits that are different he clearly wants to play on the fact that he used to be a driver and says you know that's my connection to the drivers yeah. themselves rally that comes up in every answer rally yes, yeah. driver yeah, yeah. Um, but he, that came up in most answers he gave in the couple of press conferences he's he's done. And I think it was a deflection technique because he's like, well, right now I'm not in a position to really say much more. So I just need to say that I understand the driver's point of view and their frustrations and I will talk to them. But um, that only will go so far in that role now. Like there's, there's he's going to have to be very smart politically. Uh, he's going to have to be very strong. And to be honest, when, when I ask about Michael Massey, I think, dare I say it's an easy win for Ben Salim, but one of them will be, to not have Massey in that role coming back yeah. at the very least a complete restructuring where it's not full control to Massey, because even if it turns out, like, cause we don't know yet, like how it all came together. Um, what was said by who in terms of the way they wanted the race to be handled or anything like that. Uh, even if Massey was under pressure from elsewhere uh, this, and this is just speculation. This isn't like, Oh, I've heard I'm, this. I made the same speculation, <laughs> but yes. Yeah, exactly. If, if he's, if he's had pressure from elsewhere and then he's gone down that route and then there's this backlash and no one's, had his back so far basically um he's just there's going to be no confidence in him from so many teams now he's lost the respect of the teams that i don't think it's going to be possible for him to have full control in race control um and not have every decision questioned even if he makes every decision perfectly from now on for the rest of his life they're just not gonna they're not gonna trust him as much and when a lot of those calls are safety calls that is critical even if and i can't quite say even if he's not to blame at all yeah, there's a critical safety call. If that's being second guessed, that's like a that is a danger. But for for the new president, he can always say that is something that was under a previous administration. It had it still been Todd, and he made a he can't then damn himself effectively. Whereas the new president can make changes and make conclusions. Yeah, that's true. It, it kind of gives him the freedom to do it because he he wasn't there. But at the same time, yeah, you could find that he turns around and goes, look, this what didn't happen under me. I'm going to restructure things. But, mm. you know, these are people that weren't working for me originally. So I'm going to give them a chance under me type thing. Um, I think that'd be a brave call to make. But um, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit harsh almost to until the full facts are established. And again, we've got to wait a long time for that now, the way the FIA has uh, set out the timeline. It's essentially the final findings or any changes are going to be on the Friday of the barring Grand Prix weekend, which is um, yeah. only too late really to really influence major changes isn't it. So it's say Marcy doesn't lose his job, then he's not going to lose it on the Friday of the race weekend. If they either don't have a replacement lined up or they didn't know it's coming. So we'll either know much earlier or he will continue. But if, if he's done nothing wrong, then, or there are circumstances that I say nothing wrong as in, you know, he was following certain orders or, or, or whatever. If there's, an, if, if there's any sort of explanation that can make sense for how it ended up this way, yeah. that absolves him of so much of the blame, then it'd be really unfair to be screaming for his head uh, and say he has to go when actually it might not be totally his fault. But I, I think just the circumstances that have been created, whether it was by him or by anybody else, means that it's an untenable position for him. Um, and, you know, if the FIA need to, then they should kind of say to him that you can run another another category of racing. Like we're going to move you on to something else, but we need to completely shake up F one because there's just there's just no faith in it anymore. Even from the teams talking to the teams, they are um, you know they're they're pretty unhappy about the fact that they're the way they're now going racing. There's this doubt. There's this that this is what all the focus is on. Yeah, that that there's this negative energy around F one, and that's all come from the FIA, not from 
any of the teams themselves. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So you think this is from the team bosses as well? Obviously, there wasn't just Abu Dhabi in 2021. Brazil also attracted a lot of attention, just judging the way that drivers are allowed to drive and defend and perhaps, perhaps hearing that team principal to to Massey radio as well and just seeing like how uh, forthright and uh, and convincing and hypnotic Christian Horner can be mid-race like he would make an excellent cult leader and I, I'm not sure I wouldn't join the cult but he was under a lot of pressure when you say it's team bosses is it, is it a lot of team bosses that were were looking at that situation going something not quite right here we don't know how to go racing yeah, um, I think I think most team members looking at it were kind of like, well, if that can be like, then yeah. further down the line, what else could change? Or you know, there's just so many inconsistencies all year, and I agree with you. A lot of it wasn't helped by the audio that we heard from team principals because for a lot mm-hmm. of them as well, that that wasn't their job. Like they, um, I think McLaren explained it quite well. They have one person within the team who liaises, I think their sporting director liaises with Massey, but, you know, Zach Brown or Andrea Seidel doesn't jump on the radio and, and scream and shout at him because they're overseeing so much more and they probably yeah. are a bit more passionate and caught up in it, but they're, they're not dealing with the specifics of maybe that, that exact regulation at that time. They don't have it in front of them or whatever, like a, like a sporting director might need to have. So I think that definitely did need limiting. And Ross Braun came out, I think, and said, look, we're going we're gonna to limit that. Um, the bit that we heard from him after Abu Dhabi that I think he spoke to Automotor and Sport in Germany and said that we're going to stop that happening. 
And uh, Zach Brown said he's really pleased to hear that because he thinks that's right. And, and, and I'm the same. It's great for TV. It was great, like, insight when they opened up the FIA channel. But at the same at time, first. it kind of, it, it, yeah, and it kind of glorified talking back to the ref. And, I, you know, I'm a big sports fan on all sports. Mm. And it's one of the things I really dislike about the lack of control a referee has in football is the way that players are allowed to speak to them. Managers can rant at them. And it goes all rugby, the way down. Yeah, it goes all yeah. the way down. It does. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I mean, yeah, kids, kids are doing it. Like mm. it's, I was, I was genuinely yesterday, I went to watch some rugby, um, some fairly local rugby here in London and it was great. And the respect for the ref was excellent. But on the way there, getting off the train, there was just a Saturday afternoon game on the park going on and you could hear the effing and blinding at the referee for decisions. And it's just a reaction. You know, he blows up and gives a, gives a free kick and people swear at him and then they just carry on. Like that's normal. That shouldn't, in my view, I was always like, that's terrible. That shouldn't be allowed. But in F1, suddenly we started to kind of glamorize it. And I think yeah. that was a dangerous, dangerous it, thing. So as much dramatic. as it might make the radio comms less entertaining, I think it's the right thing from a sporting thing. Yeah, but it looked good on the Netflix series, which you were on, Mr. Medland. It's you. It's all to make you and your talking head happy. I do the feel drama. sorry for Netflix. Like the, Yeah, the guys that make that, they said the abuse they got, like obviously... In some senses, it's great for them because of the drama around it. But in yeah. others, they're like, well, A, we don't have access to race control. So, you know, it's not like we have the inside story on this. But B, the way that people then say it's because of them. Yeah, because ne- be- they're controlling <laughs> it apparently now. Netflix yeah. are in control. Um, and they're also, um, they've just announced it that they are doing a documentary on tennis. So they're in Melbourne, the same company that do the F1. Oh, no! If- yeah. Oh, no! Yeah. So, so you've got the Djokovic thing going on. They're like, of course, that's all our fault too. Um, so, they, yeah, they, they're kind of, um, as much as it is good content for them, they, they, you know, they have nothing to do with it. And if they didn't exist, we'd definitely still have this. Like you said, 94. Yeah. I mean, 94 would have been the exact same scenario if we had social media and Netflix. And, you know, if that happened today, even if we ruled racing the way we should, um, because it was only three years later that Schumacher got disqualified from the whole season for what he did to Villeneuve. Yeah. Like that, that, that wasn't that much of a different time between those two instances. So it's just the way that they were kind of covered and viewed. Okay, uh, okay, okay. Let me get your uh, your opinion on this because you know we were talking about things filtering down, and we we've started to see uh, in, in sim racing. So we do a lot of sim racing in Mist Apex, and uh, we had our twelve hour enduro, enduro yesterday. We raised. I think we're going to tick over to five thousand pounds for Macmillan Cancer Support. So thank you so much wow, to everyone who donated effort. and gave uh, gave their time. Unfortunately, Brad's team, uh, Brad Philpott's team won, which makes it look like a fix. But honestly, we tried everything. We even we even gave them a 16-year-old driver, but it turned out he was like an MX-5 champion. But in sim racing, we are seeing in the, the public lobbies people doing a Verstappen. I'm not trying to be anti-Verstappen here, uh, but doing that kind of move very aggressively on the outside all the way off, you know, the Brazil-type move. Uh, and and that filters down. And before our event, we had to be very clear. You know, in our event, you need to leave racing room on the outside. If you drive in such a way that your your opponent has to leave the track when he's alongside you, you're going to be uh, penalised. So this isn't anti-Verstappen, but going forward, if I'm a team principal driver coach now, I will be saying to my drivers, you had better damn well drive like Verstappen does. You had better not turn if someone's overtaking you on the outside you go all the way to the edge of the track and beyond you have to do that now because that is that is modern f1 i just you know what what's your take on that firstly am i being weird and paranoid but should we do something about it uh so i think something needed to be done about it i think the problem is like it's not clear that that is okay because it well, was apparently. in brazil 
Well, yeah. it was in Brazil, but yeah. then it wasn't in Jeddah, which is why that was when I had sympathy for Verstappen. Because yes, no, true. I, yep. I, yep. I, felt, I felt it was completely unfair what happened, or completely wrong that he was allowed to do it in Brazil. But once that happened, for him to then do the same two races later and be told, no, you can't do that now. Yeah. I'm like, well, unless you've made that abundantly clear to everybody, then which, which perhaps behind closed doors they did, but and most of the drivers seem to say prior to that event happening, it's still not clear what we can and can't do then I've got sympathy for the driver just being consistent themselves and being penalised differently. And then you get something like Abu Dhabi where I will defend Verstappen for the first lap. What more is he meant to do when he, when he throws it down the inside at turn, was it six, um, gets the car stopped. No, I, I'm still amazed that Lewis left the door open, but I assume it was because of the fear of contact. But the door was open. Max made the corner, made a clean overtake, essentially. Lewis took the runoff, completely fine too, to avoid contact in the yeah. sense of, you know, he either, if there'd been a wall there, he'd have had to back out much earlier or the two of them would have ended up in the wall together or Lewis would have ended up in the wall. I get those points. So take the runoff because it's there. But but Max actually made that move stick cleanly. And then for the stewards not to give him that place back, I also was like, why is, why is that? Like, what's he, What more is he meant to do? Is he meant to kind of send them a note to say, I'm going to pass him on the inside here. I'm going to use this amount of braking force. I'm going to be at this angle. Like, there's you've got to let them, that's the point where I'm like, let them race. I just felt they got it wrong so many times last year. Uh, and that is something, again, that enough team bosses have said is that okay. they need a complete rewrite of certain rules to make it clear where we start from next year. Because otherwise, yeah. at the first race, nobody will still know what will count as a legal move and an illegal. All right. Well, look, let's fix it. Brilliant. Let's take let's take five minutes to fix it. And by the way, uh, Weitzer in our live chat just says, I, I love how Chris is, is mentioning the humans that are being pulled into everything. I think it was very important to have the conversation and your view on, on the media and how, how you guys were affected. Just on that, actually, there was something uh, you said about some of the uh, questions that came in and someone said, um, you know, did anyone have any pressure from F1 or the FIA or anything like oh, that about okay. the way you should... I don't know if I've jumped ahead bit here. I no, just no, no, no. Let, let me time. read the question. It's, I, actually, yeah. I, I just skipped it for time, but it was it was Jack, and he said, Jack Reeves said, he may or may not be able to answer this on record, and I don't want you like getting sacked for <laughs> anything, but on the F1 Nation podcast, which is uh, produced by, the, by F1, they didn't mention the Abu Dhabi controversy at all post-race, presumably due to pressure from F1. So his question was, have have you had any pressure not to say anything from F1 like that? And if so, has that changed in recent years? And on a personal note, I'd like to say, what is the F1 gift basket like? Because I hope to get it one day and then I will totally just say whatever they want. I'll tell you what, I got, I mean, more through uh, my better half, Jess, who also works in F1 and is friends with one of the PRs at Sky. Talk about get, power we got, we got a Christmas hamper from Sky Did before you? Abu Dhabi. That was really oh, nice. Wow. Um, and I've still, but the thing is, I've been a pain in the backside for most of the year about <laughs> press conferences and televising things. And uh, I don't think I'm that they're a huge fan of mine, to be honest, but uh, not a single thing from anybody anywhere. Um, nothing from F1, nothing from the FIA, nothing. Like, even when I've been critical of both and then I've contacted either side to ask for an update or what's going on, they've been courteous with their reply. They might not have been particularly helpful, but they haven't been like, well, we're not helping you because you said this or that. Uh, none of that. Same from the teams. Um, like there's been no team saying you need to be doing this more, you need to be doing that more. Uh, there's been there's been nothing from Red Bull saying you know why are you criticising stuff. You know we won the title fair and square or whatever. They I think they appreciate that it's you know doesn't Bit involve rough. them really. Yeah. It wasn't their fault. Nope. This is this is um, you know uh, the the focus is on the way it's governed. So um, no, absolutely nothing. I'm, I'm more than happy to say it on record. And to be honest, I think I I would be amazed if anybody who doesn't directly work for F1 or the FIA. I'd be amazed if any of them have had someone in their ear saying, Leo, don't say this, do say that. 
because it would get out. It would absolutely get out. This is such a big deal. That's true. Yeah. You, you couldn't get away with it. And the second it did, the second one journalist went, Formula One said to me, don't put pressure on us about this. Boom. They're in huge credibility trouble. So um, I've actually got a meeting with um, someone from F1 uh, this week. It was going to be last week. Uh, just for a general chat that we were going to have in one of the earlier races before the end of the season uh, about just the way the media works with F1. Uh, and there's questions I'd like to ask them about certain things but have, have had absolutely nothing. And they quite easily could just drop your WhatsApp and go, you know, mm. turn the heat down a bit or, you know. Ne- never, not like, even like that? Not, no, like, not, not like, hey, 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 Meders, we're trying our best. Just give us a week, man. A give us a week. No, dare I say, to be fair to them, as in the way they've handled yeah. us as media, not a thing. They've just, okay. you know, I, think, I think they appreciate it. These are not the people that make the calls anyway. Um, but I think they know that we have to, like when we do criticise them, we have to if, if they've done wrong. Um, as much as fans will say we haven't done that enough. And uh, but actually, Weitz's larger point that he was making there before we went down that path was that whatever your viewpoint of what happened in 2021, because of, because you were talking about the human element, we should remember that Massey is also a human being and he must be at home at the moment. He must be a wreck uh, sat at home uh, over what is, you know, it's a sport. And I, I, I I'm sure we're not calling him evil. And most people are just going, this is a terrible call. It's been misjudged. Um, and yeah, that he must be at home. It, it must have. It must not have been a good Christmas in the Massey household. No, not at all. And I, I maintain, and I, I put this in print at the time as well, I maintain he wasn't trying to help Verstappen win the championship. He wasn't being biased towards any driver oh, like, yes, I agree. purposefully. Yeah. He was trying to create the most exciting finish possible. He was trying to get them racing each other for the title. He thought, I guess, that what he was doing was a good thing, that he was like, it doesn't deserve to end this way. We should see them fight for the, t- for the championship on track. We should have a green flag finish. And what he unfortunately then did you know wrongly did was create a situation where really only one driver was going to win yeah um because of the way it all panned out and it did unfairly influence the race but i i completely disagree with the view i can't you know i can't speak for him because i haven't spoken to him so i don't know but i completely disagree with the view that he was trying to get verstappen to win the championship i I don't believe that's true at all i think he was just trying to make it the most exciting finish he could so in our fixing a formula one that we're going to do now i guess that's number one on the list is uh, the the referee which is what race control essentially is just managing you know the game the referee checks the studs on the players brings play back has access to var uh, what's it called in football the the camera yeah, system is var yeah is var he's got access to that which is the equivalent of referring it to the stewards but we need to i guess remove any broadcast pressure from race control because because I'm, I'm i'm convinced there was broadcast pressure on race control yeah i i would be there's obviously broadcast influence, isn't there? Because they they have the channels, they 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 put them out there. They have um, they're tapped into the FIA, and they they must discuss it. I, I'd be amazed if they don't discuss with the FIA what they can and can't broadcast from their conversations with teams. Yeah, but that's bad. You haven't got a football referee hasn't got uh, you know F F one and Sky in his head telling him what looks good on on telly. Well, so I think with, and this sounds weird, but I think with cricket and their decision review system, I think it is actually tied in to the broadcaster because obviously those pictures uh, instantly go out. Yeah. And I think it's actually the broadcaster that co- that calls them up. They have someone who sits with the broadcaster to access all these shots. So I guess in a sense they are tied in. But yeah, I mean, it just needs to main, remain completely impartial if that's going to be the case. I mean, it'll be more time because Formula One produces a world feed that then goes out to all the different broadcasters. So, yeah. you know, it's not like Sky produced their own trackside shots and things. It's all comes from one central Formula One controlled broadcast centre. So from that point of view, if 
it's a Formula One and FIA tie-up, then it just needs to be, you're right, that there shouldn't be any commercial influence going on. There shouldn't be the F1 going to the FIA and saying, look, you know, this, this is a bad look for us to finish a season like this. You need to change it. The FIA need to have complete freedom to handle it the best way they think. And what, I, what really surprises me, okay, the race hadn't been a classic, but we'd had some moments yeah. of excitement and drama. Yeah. But in 2012, we had all that. And it was still massively dramatic. And it was like Vettel looked like he was going to win the title, but Alonso had looked like he might at certain times. And it was raining in Brazil. And then we had the big shunt for the resta, and it ended on the safety car, and that was it. They didn't red flag that. They didn't think, wow, we need to finish this in racing style because it's been such an epic season. They rolled over the line by the safety car, and nobody had a go because it's, it was what the rules said to do. It's so normal to finish under a safety car. Yeah. But the Amer- it, you know, I think the Americans, and I don't want to be... A countryist, but a, a lot of North Americans have said to me, "Oh no, but it would have been a disaster if it had finished under the safety car." And I'm, I'm astounded. I'm like, "No, finishing under the safety car is such a completely normal thing to happen. Almost dramatic in its own right, I guess." Yeah, I think. But then, if I defend them, I guess what they're probably saying by disaster in that compared to finishing it with a yeah. last lap shootout, yes, um, you know, and nobody going into it would have wanted it to finish that way. Like everybody would have been like, "Oh, it's a bit deflating that it finishes in that style." But that, I think that would have been a feeling for like an hour or two. Like that excitement that you <laughs> yes. had thinking it might restart or watching the race itself, like would have been drained out of you to watch it just roll behind the safety car to finish. But then it would have been actually, you know, that's not the moment to decide this championship. It's been all of these over this season. Instead, we did get something that you could turn around and point to a moment that decided the championship. That had nothing to do with the driver, which is a real shame. But um, mm. yeah, I think, I think there's a, a lot will need to be reviewed that's not just about the racing rules or the um, the way race control works in terms of applying re- regulations. You're right. It's about the way the whole kind of sphere at an F1 circuit uh, kind of fits together and who works with who and who can influence who. And um, I, I don't think it's a problem that F1 and the broadcaster gets to speak to race control if it's to get more access for fans to understand stuff. It might actually mean more transparency. But I, w- I would remove the the team principals being able to scream and shout because that's just not fair. Okay, so I'm going to play the role of the new FIA president, and uh, how is how does he, how is he addressed in in normal in normal uh, greetings? Ben Suleyem, uh, Mohammed Ben Suleyem, yeah. Okay, um, uh, Mohammed Ben Suleyem, yeah. I have not actually met him in person yet. Okay, so, so um, you're not Bezies. He's not like, hey, call me Mo. There's none of that no, yet. No, not, we're not yet. there. Okay, no. so we'll he, get there. Though. But he he does call you up and he says, you know, sorry, overdue, Chris. Should have spoken to you earlier. Uh, we want to yeah. get this sorted before the start of the season. What are our instructors instructions to the drivers on the Verstappen type uh, moves, particularly like Monza, you know, leaving the foot in, ending up on top of the car, pushing wide in Brazil, um, and you can point to Hamilton doing these same kind of moves against Rosberg. You can also point to Leclerc a little bit. The, the Leclerc and Hamilton ones not quite to the same extent. Verstappen has taken it to another level, I think. Where do we stand on that, Mister Medland? We'll we'll go on you. Either everyone's going to do that or we bring it all back and ask for more racing room. What's your recommendation, sir? Uh, mine is that we ask for more racing room. It's that we are, you know, maybe if you have to make it very, very simple, you go any time that uh, one driver has to leave the track to avoid contact with another driver, we will investigate. That doesn't mean you're going to penalise, mm-hmm. but it means that they're going to have a proper look at it and say, was was that due to... The, the car on the inside or the car that forced the other driver off forcing that situation or was it because the one on the outside because this does happen sometimes was just chancing their arm they weren't really going to make the corner themselves and they made it look like they got forced off when really it wasn't going to happen and that that does still happen too so um yeah to say to them look you know we're going to look at it 
and we're going to look at it at all of them. And I think one thing that they should double down on, though, it's something that um, some of the team bosses wanted reviewed to make more lenient. But I think they need to stick with the penalty point system for these driving infringements, because you're essentially saying that if we do find you guilty of this, if we do feel that you, you would have caused an accident if the other person hadn't taken evasive action, which is something that Lewis always complained about, the amount of times he got out of Max's way, yep. um, then you are penalizing them with points that will add up. You can't just keep doing it. You have to change your ways. Um now, to be fair to Max, most of the time he wasn't penalised, so he didn't need to change his ways. But if they were penalising more consistently or de- handling it more consistently, that lesson would have needed to get through to either him or any other driver that kept getting the, getting yeah. penalised for it because the penalty points would rack up pretty quick. Yeah, I've never, I've not blamed really Verstappen for, for making those moves. In fact, I've been more, more critical of Hamilton. Not, and it's hard to say this, it's kind of stupid to say, but like, <laughs> let yourself get hit a couple of times by that move. Force the stewards to make a decision. I said the same thing about Rosberg as well. So like, hold your ground, let him hit you, and then see what the stewards say. So there's, there is a way of doing that, you're right, that is, um, I think would help. But there's also a point where you kind of go, well, you're in a position where you're the driver gets to choose if there's contact or not. You're still in racing cars at 100 yeah, miles yeah, or something. Yeah, it's kind of you stupid. don't know how it's going to end out. And I remember Felipe Massa at one stage with Lewis Hamilton, what would it have been, about 2011, maybe 2012 yeah. before Lewis left? They were like magnets to each other. Yeah. But the amount of yeah. times you saw Massa allow an accident to happen, like he'd got the high ground. He, he knew he wasn't in the wrong. So he'd be like, so we're crashing. And I just felt that was, for someone as well who'd had like a serious injury from something that was so freak. I was like, in these cars, you cut, surely you can't be doing that. I mean, it costs a hell of a lot of money anyway to repair them. But like, there is a danger factor here. So I prefer to see a driver actually getting out of the way. I think it just does need harsher stewarding to say, just yeah. because he's jumped out the way doesn't mean it wasn't a, a dangerous move or an illegal move. Uh, well, it's, like, it's like in football, you yeah, quite often get yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, jumping over the two-footed tackle is still a dangerous two-footed tackle. Exactly. Yeah. Like you don't stand there and let your leg get broken. You jump out of the way, but then because you didn't <laughs> yeah. end up on the floor in pain, they're like, "Well, it's not a foul." It's like, "Well, no, it absolutely uh, is." You know, I was taught as a kid. I had a coach who just kept saying to me, "He's like, stop staying on your feet. You've got to go down. You've got to go down to get the foul." Uh, Jose in our chat says, "The thing is, if you let yourself be hit, you get a crash. The other car gets a meaningless ten-second penalty and goes on to to win the race." And uh, it's not as simple as us here saying, "Oh, well, yeah, you know, defend the outside car more." We can point to two examples in the season where you said the outside car hangs on in there where they shouldn't uh, one for Hamilton probably Imola he probably didn't quite have enough to be where he is and then and they did end up having contact and then Verstappen yeah. at, uh, at Monza in the chicane that was done uh, but then he's like, oh no I was forced off so yeah if we go too far oh, I'm glad it's not me that's having to make the decisions but clearly something was not right this season yeah and we had so many occasions this year where the top two the two biggest names arguably in the sport that right now to the best talents were going wheel to wheel properly fighting for a race win like that's what made it such a great season this wasn't one of those years where one car was dominant at one sort of track and one was dominant at another and they kind of just picked up the wins here and there that happened a bit towards the end of the year at times but so many races it was the two of them together on track so there were big decisions that did need making it was just the inconsistency was so frustrating and then also made it harder for them to know what they could do. And when you're in such a tight title fight, you need consistency because the the tiniest margin is going to make a difference. And it it generally did. Like if we look at, you know, to go into the final race level on points, like there was definitely moments earlier in the season where each of them could have done something differently that could have changed, changed that outcome. Um, So it wasn't in that sense, it wasn't all on Abu Dhabi. and, And that is one thing we forget. But there were other moments that happened in the season where 
because things maybe weren't clear to the drivers or um, because they were made slightly tentative because they thought they might get a penalty for something or more overly aggressive because they thought they wouldn't, whatever it was, uh, the lack of consistency didn't help throughout the year. And that's um, that's one of the big frustrations. But in another way, we can also defend Massey there because his job isn't to give out the penalties. His is just to tell the stewards to have a look at it. Um, I felt he should have in Brazil. But other than that, most of the time, you've actually got to turn around and say, well, it's the stewards that have made the wrong decision. It's not Massey. He's the one who's just said to them, I think you should look at this. All right. All right. I, <laughs> do you know what? The whole thing, it's like, I just, I, I thought I was over it. And then we start talking and I just start getting all het up. And, but it, <laughs> it does show how much, you know, we love the sport. And, and I can tell that you are a, a genuine 100% a super fan of Formula One. So, that's, so that makes me super doubly jealous the, of your, your job and your world. So let's just do some quick fire questions to finish off from our patrons, if that's okay from you. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, John M says, uh, Audi Porsche. How real is it? Very real, but has been a number of times before, speaking to people that have worked at, at Porsche specifically. Uh, and the problem is, it's at the whim of some very senior execs. And if the timing's right, then they'll be pushing ahead with it. But then the split second, the timing's not right, and they need to think of their jobs. They'll just say, nope, you know, they're big enough companies to do that. They can go quite a long way down the line and spend quite a lot of money in, into setting up or researching it and evaluating it. And if it's going to look bad at the wrong time or something, then in a split second, they can change their minds. And and I wonder if this has been going on at, at Renault to some extent. I've certainly speculated heavily that it is that you are on the whim of a, a CEO, whoever's in that position. And for a lot of teams, they will be sold like it looks like Cyril Abitable probably sold them on this plan. We are going to go back. This is going to be glorious for you. And then they ended up palming it off on a, a sub brand. And I'd love to have been in the room in the meetings uh, that decided that. So is there someone telling Audi and Porsche, no, no, this is glory, or is this Audi and Porsche saying, let's just, let's just be part of the circus? Can they be realistic and still sell the F1 dream? Yeah, I, I think it's more Audi and Porsche, and they'll have looked at it from the outside. You, know, you look at Mercedes and the model they've created. You know, That was obviously an existing F1 team, and it's just um, part-owned and part-funded by Mercedes as the actual brand, by Daimler, but not solely. But it's known as the Mercedes team. It gets them great publicity, yeah. coverage, PR, um, it's not quite win on Sunday, sell on Monday, but it does heighten like your reputation if you've got a dominant Formula One team that you must make good quality road cars. And that will be something that Audi and Porsche want a slice of. Uh, and it's become more realistic now because A, the budget cap means you don't need to spend stupid money where it's not actually going to give you a return anymore. Uh, you can actually run it at a profit uh, if, if you run it properly. But B, it also means with the reset in certain regs, the way the engine regs are changing, because that was obviously a huge differentiator in 2014, uh, having a new set of engine regs that are attractive is a starting point where you can be competitive from. Whereas, you know, if it had been any of the last six, seven, eight years, if either Porsche Rally wanted to come in, look at what happened to Honda. Honda's a huge brand, and it took so long for them to finally get it right. Uh, it was so damaging to them for so long. So, that you know, for a lot of people, they couldn't do it before now. Oh, we've got lots of questions here. Okay, Mia says, what about Otmar? Is he finished? Look, let's ask the real question. Mr. Madland, when are they announcing... Otmar Schaffnauer for Alpine team principal? So I don't mind being wrong sometimes, uh, honestly. Um, and <laughs> I will sit here now and say, I'm not certain that's going to happen. Ooh, I'm not saying okay. it won't. I'm not saying it won't. I don't know it's certainly going to happen. What I know is that Otmar wanted out of, Alpi- of Aston Martin, went talking to people, went looking for a way out or somewhere to go. Um, and 
once he then essentially got a, a good uh, exit package, I guess, from Aston Martin, he, yeah, he he realised his time up time was up there because of the structure that was around him. He wasn't being given the power he wanted. He'd been at that team for so long. Uh, Whitmarsh had come in above him. They're obviously lining someone up because the fact that Mike Cracks come in so quickly. Yes, I knew you were going to laugh. <laughs> Everybody is going to laugh. Why? Uh, why isn't he going by Michael? Come on! Why isn't it Michael Crack? Come on! That was one of the funniest things I saw on Twitter. I think it's Tommy Bellingham who does WTF one stuff, who uh, took the screenshot of Toto from Abu Dhabi, and he said Michael Crack when he told his friends that he wants to be known as Mike. And it just says, no, Michael, that's so not right. No, no, no. <laughs> um, and it was, yeah, I thought that was genius. Okay, but, sorry. Um, okay, that's the last time I'm going to be pure all about that, I promise. I mean, yeah, we'll all get past it quickly. Um, but he's he's very good at his job. I, he could well be, they're looking for like an Andres Seidel thing. I think Aston yeah. looked very much at what McLaren have done. You know, it's another reason they hired Whitmarsh is um, like the group set up and the way that McLaren's worked. And they want to emulate that in certain ways. And and some some of the paths they've taken seem to be very, very similar. But um, Otmar, I think, just wanted out, knew his time was up, was looking for a way out. Whether or not that actually existed, whether or not any of these talks happened and came to a positive conclusion he wanted, or if it was just, once I leave, then I can chase even harder, uh, I don't know. But um, it must have been a tough place to work if you didn't feel wanted and that you weren't going to go anywhere. And it might have been better for his reputation to be out rather than demoted or, you know, in a sense, he has been replaced. But it's because those talks came out from last year, it sounds like, yeah, it was more on his own terms than forced out. So, um, yeah, I'm not certain he's going there. It does still tally now with uh, Bukowski leaving. But, yeah, it's not one where I've been been told, yeah, well, that's definitely happening and it's the worst kept secret ever. This isn't like Russell to Mercedes okay. at this point. Uh, but, I, you know, tomorrow I'm sure they'll put the press release out that he's gone there and I'll look stupid. <laughs> but, yeah, I oh, don't know that's coming if that's happening. Yeah, if you could have a word with the press department and say stop releasing stuff on Monday, that would really help our Sunday podcast like a lot. Because we keep having to scramble. We're coming back on a Tuesday to record uh, another show. Let's see. <laughs> more more questions. We've got uh, a couple of minutes left. Are you good? Are you good, Chris? Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. Um, Stuart Neal says, please, what chance for Williams? And he puts the, the begging emoji. What chance for Williams next year? I think more points than last year. Uh, I think further progress. I'm, I know they've lost George, but that car was still good. And don't forget, you know, Latifi scored the, the biggest result um, first, if that makes sense, before George got the Spa podium that... that was slash was cool okay. um a brilliant qualifying performance uh deserved a podium at the end of the weekend from that but that wasn't a race come on um so how anyone can get trophies and points um, points for yeah for that i am i'm just amazed but anyway um so i think yeah i think the progress is actually quite good i think you know the they've got solid funding in there sounds like they've got a windfall coming from uh, money owed from rocket after a bit of a, a lawsuit there for basically saying that they haven't paid us for our for the title deal that they pulled out of and and um they have a lot of money so that sounded like it's been uh concluded so that that, that should put them in an even better place um i was told by one team boss that they've heard that williams will be running at the budget cap this year which that's good is yeah is good and is achievable now that the level it's at it's i think the thing is for a lot of teams you know it's probably six on the grid that weren't running at the budget cap once it came in but to know where it was to know what you needed to be at the same level as everyone else, to then try and convince other funders or to get to get to that level was a lot more attainable. But what was the point in in busting your gut to get to that level if others were spending three times as much? It, it didn't make sense. So, um, so now it's it's just much more realistic for these teams to go for it. So I think Williams can get there. Um, I think the way that they've um, 
got Albon in that you know they've, they've got good money out of Red Bull for that but they've also got a very good driver and Latifi has improved I know people will talk about Abu Dhabi but um, you know the points he did <laughs> oh, pick up Latifi, when, yeah. when they were on offer yeah and there was a few times he got really close to George even on a Saturday I think he only beat him once in the end um, was it the final race he actually out qualified I, 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 I think you're being very lovely and very generous and he <laughs> does seem very nice and lovely as well which which kind of mitigates a little bit but you know he is as good an example of an out and out pay driver as you could you could hope to have uh, but if has he got potential to to do a job with Albon is the question yeah and i'd i'd say yes i think the progress we've seen from him he's still not going to be your team leader and yeah he sh- at this stage of his career he should be based on how long he's been there but he does he will do a solid enough job his big big thing he does have to work on is qualifying because he can't get it hooked up on the first runs and he's always just missing out that couple of tenths at the end of q1 George goes through, Latifi misses out, and George keeps improving, keeps improving. I think we saw Latifi once do it. Once he went through, then with that knowledge, he, he improves a bit again into the next one. He's, he's got enough. Yeah, he's got enough about him that I think he'll do a solid enough job there. Obviously, the money he brings is very, very helpful, which will make the car stronger. That, that engineering team is very good. Capito is a very good hire for them. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to call more points than last year. Okay, no, call a position. What, what, come on, what are you doing? Oh. Uh, ooh, in Constructors. Yeah. Uh I'll go I'll go P seven. Oh P seven okay, so one higher. Yeah, but I mean oh, I one, think... it's very tough to work out who's gonna move yeah. where. Um and two, I think that would that'll be, you know, some good good results will come from that. That's I don't true. think we'll see what we had this year where, you know, um basically McLaren and Ferrari were locking out the positions behind um or even Alpha Tari every now and then and Alpine when it was on their day, but you didn't ha- you had that cluster that were really strong. So for Williams, it was so rare that they could actually get into the points because the midfield was so tightly packed ahead of them. I don't think we'll have that. I think we'll have actually a much bigger spread where at certain tracks, like they could end up being like the fourth quickest team or something or the third quickest team and at others, they'll be the slowest. I think William fans after the last uh, eight years, I think I think they'll probably take that if there was yeah. some yeah somewhere they're they're challenging in and around uh, for the best of the rest um mr chris medlin thank you so much for joining us i'm, I'm gonna stick to our uh, allotted time in the hopes that i don't irk you and that you'll come back and, and visit us in the shed again at some point it, it's it's not me you need to worry about irking it's the better half you know how this works oh yeah right okay um... yeah with and thank you uh, very much uh, to jess for her kind permission in that case <laughs> uh well, but where can people go and find you? Obviously, Chris Medland on the internet, and you you do do a, a podcast as well. I suppose we can mention that begrudgingly. I must say, you guys, you, you let us mention it last year, and <laughs> listenership went up massively off the back of it. Like, right, in that case, no. Steps, so right. thank you very much cut, for everyone who cut the decided tape. to check it out. Cut the tapes, Steve. Um, no, we don't mind. As long as yours didn't mind. go down. No, um, they didn't. Yeah, one called The Paddock with uh, Lawrence Barreto from F1 and Nate Saunders from ESPN. Uh, and it basically starts with a terrible joke from Nate. Uh, and goes downhill from there. But um, we do talk F1 sometimes. We talk about like the world traveling around it, things we've done that's a bit weird and cool and fun. And um, we act like geeks sometimes, you know, it's like, it's, oh. it's, when you, it's the pinch yourself moments of, we've got to do this. We've got to, you know, play golf with Lando the other day. How cool is that? <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we do all that sort of stuff that, yeah. Um, professionally we shouldn't really but yeah we that's that's the sort of stuff we talk about. Um, and then yeah, just at Chris Medland F1 on Twitter um and at chris medlin on my instagram and then i write for loads of things if you google it you'll find it i'm sure okay well look if you go to pad hoc don't abandon us that's not how this works uh, there are two podcasts we ever recommend on miss daybreaks which is yours and uh, and for f1 sake podcast as well because those guys are a right bunch of turnips and uh, and hopefully that means that you'll be uh, more than happy to come back and join us in the shed again 
Absolutely. And we'll return the favour. I'll make sure that on the next episode <laughs> that I, I, I bitch about how long I was. No, uh, I do talk about how great <laughs> it was. The trouble I got into when they <laughs> let me out of the shed, Chris Medlin. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I, we will see you. Have a great 2022. Thank you very much. And as I abruptly and rudely hang up on Chris Medland, uh, this is the time of the show where during the off-season, I'm going to start doing some Meet the Panel segments. So we recorded a bunch before Christmas and we'll continue doing that. And I think it's just a nice little way to end the show because I, I really do love all the guys on the panel. I respect them. They, they, they bring so much professionalism and, and just slot into the way we do things at Mistake Apex, which is... Yes, we have been described as pub chat, but we really do try and do stuff the right way. And, and the, the, that means a lot of nagging from me over audio, nagging from Uncle Steve about video as well. And I, I just love and appreciate the amount of time these guys give up. And over the years, you know, we've gotten to be friends from karting events and, and hanging out and uh, doing our sim racing stuff too. And I just I want you guys to get to know these guys a little bit in the way I do as well. So uh, here is, and I've got to make sure I press all the buttons in the right order. Here's our our latest Meet the Panel episode. Introducing none other than Matt to Rumpets. Hello, Matt. Thanks for dropping into the shed for this. Well, you know, it is such a massive effort for me to set up enjoying this call so i'm glad you appreciate the amount of work that i'm putting in here yeah i know it can be nervous talking to me <laughs> over zoom you hardly ever do that no we do a lot of podcasting um together it's it's an unlikely pairing in a way because like, i wouldn't naturally in the olden days be suddenly doing a podcast with some random dude from brooklyn yeah but weirdly it makes sense too i think it's um really helped us with you know, be a truly transatlantic show. That's what I've really liked about it. A lot of Americans have come on board and gone, because we've got an American voice on there, it makes it gives us like an instant in and relatability, you know. And then you can see how that translates, can't you, to say a female podcast or a black podcast where people will go, Oh, that person's like me. That's a good start point. I'm now comfy. Yeah, as they say, representation matters. And it's weird given my general <laughs> yeah, socioeconomic demographic. Old to be white dude. Considering that. But but in a way, and I, I actually, I went through this uh, watching cycling as well. As an American in a European sport, there yes. there is a fair amount of, um, well, I'll just use the word condescension because I think that's most appropriate yeah okay against against participants and um so it's it's been interesting to watch like the progression of the Haas team for example the Americans dipping in and out and just the the general vibe that has come from the newer viewers and to the extent that I offer something and and I like you know what I really love most is I love seeing people saying I'm brand new I love being able to learn about the sport and and I feel like regardless of your demographic, kind of what we're trying to offer here is that we are a safe space to learn about this sport 
and to talk about it at whatever level you are. We're not going to sit here and put on our judgy pants and go, oh, my gosh, you don't remember 1993? <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah think, you, well, I'm not going to talk to you because you're not worthy. I, right. yeah. I despise that attitude. So I think we definitely avoid gatekeeping wherever we yeah. can. And if, if we do accidentally do it, I think we tend to identify that. But it is interesting that you were basically a minority, like a novelty, being an American F1 fan. I mean, in 2014, when we started doing stuff together in the F1 space, it was like, oh, how strange, we've got an American. And I always thought having you on a podcast made it sound like we were off the telly. <gasps> Look, we've got a, a fancy American voice. I, I still, to this day, am astonished that, that the funniest thing to me is that were you to come over here with your accent, everyone would be like, oh, it's an authority from... And yet I go over there and he was like, oh, you sound like the telly. You must know everything. And I'm like, yeah, sure. You're paying for dinner, right? I did have that when I went to Manhattan. Everywhere we went, people would stop us and and, and be interested and want to know everything because we had a British accent, uh, sort of slightly pre-internet and social media. Uh, But I want to get all personal with you, Matt, because this is getting to know the panel. So the first thing people should know about you is that uh, you are forced to work to my UK-centric timings when it comes to uk stuff and i'll often go matt jump on the call and you'll be like okay and it's like 5 a.m but you just go oh whatever yeah you're like oh can we can we do that at like noon i'm like well yeah it's like seven in the morning but okay sure yeah i've had to i've had to learn time zones because of you but then when we're doing our evening and we're all settling in and we've got like a, a a rum or something or a a glass of wine for the podcast for you it's like two in the morning but you'll often join us anyway yeah, well, two in the afternoon, but but yeah, oh, in the afternoon, yeah. You know, having been to New Orleans, I've discovered that alcohol time can be very flexible. So I just pretend I'm over there, and then it's all okay. Okay, now we're getting into a bit of personal stuff. Why did you say New Orleans? Is that where you're from? Uh, no, no, it's just one of our. It, it has been one of our favorite places to go. Uh, my wife and I went for an anniversary. We went back uh, later with uh, with the kid. Did like a family trip there. It's just a fun place to go. But they have a tradition called an eye opener, which is a highly <laughs> alcoholic drink you consume with breakfast, and that's okay when you're in New Orleans. So technically, you can always justify it if you really want to. Sounds like I could. Uh, it sounds like I'd enjoy a trip to New Orleans. Uh, so, but w- apart from that, what what yeah. brings you and the wife to go to New Orleans? Was it like an anniversary, a proposal? Well, she had got actually. She had traveled there. Um, she had traveled there for work and really liked it. And um, then we went back for an anniversary. The two of us. I had actually been in high school. Believe it or not, we did a music trip to New Orleans to participate in some kind of competition there. And I I remember wandering down the streets with the hurricane multiple times, sort of. I, I remember I did that. I don't remember actually doing it, if you catch the small difference there. There's, there's weather was, there? Was, there's weather in New Orleans? Yeah, it's hot and tropical there. Oh. Steamy and humid. But you would, but you, the downtown, the, the French Quarter, is very European in the sense that it's walkable. Uh, the, the architecture is really lovely. And there's loads of amazing food and drink to be found and music everywhere. The music in New Orleans is just amazing. Ah, because you are, you're a music man. You're a, yep. you're a trumpet man. The easiest of all the instruments because it only has three buttons. Three buttons. But you yeah. went to like a posh place to learn trumpet. Like when we say trumpet, you're not like a dude that does trumpet as a hobby. You, you trumpet. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I attended Manhattan School of Music um, for graduate school. 
and uh, that was how long ago? Um, that was eighty-seven to eighty-nine, I think. I was so there. long ago. I was six. Yeah, very, very long ago. Yeah. I've forgotten everything I ever learned. But, <laughs> but it was um, winning that audition to get in um, because I had to play in front of the best players in New York who were on faculty there, including legends, international legends on my instrument and other instruments. And being one of the 12 people they admitted that year, that, that was, you know, nice. uh, it's kind of like you go to the Olympics and you have your good moment. And then you're like, well, I, I might've just peaked right oh, no. then. That, that could have been it. You peaked in, <laughs> you peaked in 1987. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, I had, I had, I had that, I had one of those, well, not the only time, I mean, like from a personal point of view, but from mm. an absolutely professional point of view, it, it's an achievement. It was entirely on merit and I, I literally played so far beyond my ability that I still marvel at, at what I was able to, to do. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It was just it was just one of those moments where everything came together perfectly. And so coming out of that school, is that like the music equivalent of like, oh, I'm Oxbridge, you know, or like a Harvard? Is that like, is that prestige? Yeah, if you imagine it for like fast food cooks, then yes. Right, okay. <laughs> Which because is musicians are basically lower than hired help <laughs> over here. Oh, are um, they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, and, okay. Well, there's a similar thing in the UK. Everyone kind of admires them on a ground level, but when it comes to professionality, there is an expectation that you do something you enjoy for a living. Therefore, somehow it's less valuable, or your time is less valuable. Yeah, I'll put it to you this way: um, for the for the not for the, a lot of gigs that I do and used to do, um, I get paid the same now as I did in 1987. Yeah. Uh, do you know? And uh, and my wife finds a similar thing. She goes, "I've not put my rates up for like ten years," and, and I think people want to play less and less. Uh, there's obviously it's a very competitive field as well. But you've been out there doing orchestras and 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 like trumpet gigs, and I love the the kind of event type stuff you do. You know, people will hire you to be in a particular uniform for a thing, and you make the event like kick off and be posh. Yeah, well, it's it it comes with. I'm going to make a living, but I'm not going to have a full-time job uh, and just playing in an orchestra, which is really um, about the, about the only full-time playing job you can have. I mean, you can get yeah. on Broadway and have shows, but shows open, shows close. They don't last forever. So you sort of have to do all of the things. And I've done everything from, you know, uh, wedding parties at, at the top of W hotels to parades down empty streets in Queens. Yeah. It all pays cash, so, you know, me and my trumpet will show up. Okay, so let's take cash out of it because I get the feeling that you would be out trumpeting, doing stuff, even if we took away the money factor. So we're not going to make you a millionaire, but we're going to make it that your wage is sorted. What trumpeting are you doing? What music? How are you spending your time? Um, I would play uh, small jazz. I would do big band and um, I think uh, chamber music and orchestra. So it's a selection. I asked my wife the same question. She really struggled to answer it because she just doesn't know that life without without having to make the, the ends meet or doing the music to make the ends meet. So when you give yourself the free reign of where would you perform your art, it's actually quite a difficult question. Yeah, it is. And I say that, and I'm actually I'm playing uh, this, this uh, Friday at the Bitter End with a rock band. And it's one of my favorite gigs just because of the people involved. And And I think a lot of, if I could tell you something interesting about music um, is that it's very, it was, and, and is a very, very social thing. So the gig is fun, but the people are fun and they're 
always used to be, at least pre-COVID, a lot of times as you get older, it goes away. But you would always do a gig and then you would always go out for drinks afterwards with everybody. And it was mm. always social. And you used to, you actually used to go to bars to find work. I mean, the, you would hang out in the bar. Someone would come in and say, we need people for this. And if you were there and you were free, you took the gig. And that that's how back in the day when there was that much work yeah. and there wasn't the internet, that's how things happened. Did you go, I saw a little of that actually in the, man, in the Manhattan scene. Like even just there a week on holiday, Nicola managed to get in like with a group of musicians and do stuff. But did you like carry your little trumpet around in a case? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, this predates my time, but yeah, you, you, would you would, everybody could afford to live in Manhattan. Oh yeah. And you would go hang out with the other musicians and, and they would, um, you know, and, and then contractors would come in or people would come in and say, I need a sub. Oh yeah. Are you free? Yeah. 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 Who do you know? I know so-and-so. Okay. You know, it's, it was all networks and interpersonal connections that got you work. And uh, I've seen it in action and saying it's social. It is, I mean, it's so good at the karting events when obviously my wife's doing the jazz and the piano and the singing and then suddenly the, the trumpets breaks out and there's that moment of realisation of everyone in the room because obviously I've just been sitting there going, two trumpets for about six years and then that's it. You suddenly get the trumpet out and people go, oh, like I knew, but oh. Yeah, no, it, it's still it's a, still a surprise to me how much people are impressed by my playing because I'm not necessarily all the time, but uh, it's because it's like that sound in your car. You don't notice it because it happens gradually over days and weeks and years. And then someone gets in the car and is like, what is that noise? And you're like, Oh, Oh, that noise. Yeah. I should probably get that checked out. Um, But I, I was, it's still a treat to me that 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 Jack Nichols came up and told me how impressed he was with my playing. I I, I will live with that happily as a compliment. That is good, and of course that was at a karting event. So let's talk about you and your relationship with racing a, a little bit. You are famous on Miss Apex for being very much into the tech and engineering side, which I'll, I'll roll back to. But what I was curious really about was you had not done any turning of a wheel until very late in your life. Was that your first competitive go-kart race that you did at Mist Apex? Yep, absolutely. At Bunkmore Park, jumping straight into the, one of the best probably kart tracks in Europe and uh, straight into those rental carts, which the likes of Brad and that will be like, mm-hmm, so sodies, whatever. But for us, we're like, ah, this is too fast and it's downhill and I'm going to die. Yeah, no, it was plenty fast enough. Yeah, plenty um, fast for me. For me, having ha- I had no prior references mm. whatsoever. Um, it, it was plenty fast enough for me, and it, and it was quite challenging. And and the learning curve is steep if you've never done it before. No, and the physicality of it as well. This they're surprisingly stiff to like go at, and after forty five minutes, a lot of people who don't do it will kind of see their pace kind of gradually drop off. But you were you were good. You were going around the track pretty well, and, and I reckon you will end up being in our A final out of three, eventually, doing most of those events. But where it's been most impressive has been the, the sim racing, where in certain classes, uh, just doing sim racing with a, a, a desk clamp steering wheel and VR, particularly in the GT cars, you're, you're very impressive, that pace. And considering, you know, as an old sweat, you've picked it up later in life. Yeah, um, I, I think, I feel like I have gotten better. I feel like other people have gotten better faster or have gone farther. 
So, so I do hit plateaus and I get frustrated at sort of this fixed pace gap. But, but I try to remind myself that I'm also somewhat limited by my equipment. But, but the reality is at my age, I'm never going to be able to compete with people that are less than half my age. I, I, the only thing that will save me, and this is like, this is why it's kind of been fun to watch the Alonzo journey a little bit is that the only thing that will save me is sort of experience and knowledge and stuff that I can bring from other fields to bear. So I don't, I will never, I think I've had one pole position once in, in all my iRacing career, maybe twice. I, I've only won, I think, once in F3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, we, we, but, your risk reward as an old sweat does you well. Exactly. I can bring other things to bear and still be modestly competitive at, at the level where I currently am. You know, I'm, I'm never going to compete with the, the top guys. Okay. Okay. And finally, but, but I'm, I'm yeah. learning to live with that sort of, <laughs> although it, it does every so often make me want to say I'm absolutely done because I, I do, I do have that streak of competitiveness yeah, in me. I know. I know. Me too. And be, before we go then, finally, be honest do you just put up with summers because you like having your own little area? Admit it. Finally admit it. Listening to Y2K vortices and tire squirt, it, it's dull as dishwater. And I think at this point, you're just trolling me by putting out the tech times. Uh, well, you know, I, 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 I hate to admit it, but I've seen his <laughs> copy of the notes for our golf podcast. Is that going I ahead? It's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. You're going to do a golf podcast. A tech golf podcast with Summers. Mm. No, we we have, I mean, kind of like you and I do, there's a weird, oh, we are very different in many ways. There's a weird mentality that we share. And I say weird just because it's weird that we share it, not that it's weird on its own, if you catch my oh, drift. I'm with you, I'm with you. But, but we, we have a certain simpatico when we, when we do shows, when we, when we do things together. We think the same way about a lot of stuff, and we share a lot of precepts and ideas and, and, and approaches. Um, and I think with Summers, it's the same way, but the most inaccessible, most difficult thing has always fascinated. I've always been challenged by that. I always do want to do the hardest thing. And understanding tech at that level is is the last thing as a fan you get to and it's the hardest thing and there's always more and more to learn so yeah we just whatever we just we share a vibe to put it in my daughter's terms and uh, yeah and energy. I enjoy it yeah i do i do admire it with me when it comes to the tech i get so far into it and i go oh that's interesting and then i hit a point where i think i'm getting diminishing returns whereas obviously yeah. for you 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 feel like you get more returns the deeper you go, and it's very much appreciated by a, a portion of our audience. A tiny portion. No, of I our didn't audience. say tiny it's portion. Very dedicated. I, I said a portion. Yeah, no. <laughs> hey, um, I tell you what, we'll bring this to an end now, Matt. But for a patron pod at some point, we should do the Mist Apex origin story at some point in the off season. Fair enough. I think we can manage it. Matt Trumpets at Matt PT fifty five. Have a happy new year. Thanks, you do. Oh no, if this gets released after New Year, we look like fools. Never mind, just press the button. And we're back in real time with me in the shed. I was just there watching that interview as it rolled back. It was indeed before New Year. And uh, Matt is a very interesting character, as those of you who have tuned into things like Remain Indoors and Doom Scrolling 
will have have realized by now. Um, So you guys might have been wondering where doom scrolling has gone. And it is is the feeds. We're not doing doom scrolling in, in its old form. But what we're doing is we're bringing doom scrolling into our patron podcast. So because we have we have such an active patron community now and because they have basically empowered us to spend more time on Mist Apex, we're going to be doing uh, twice monthly, bi-monthly. Does that work? We'll do two a month. So basically Tuesdays are a day that m- me and Matt have put aside now for more content. Two of those will be things like uh, Uncle Joe and uh, Matthew Carter and anyone and maybe, maybe Chris Medlin that we can get a hold of for some extra F1 content. But we're also going to uh, have every other Tuesday doing some patron-only content as well. We're looking at some some live call-ins. So I've got a bit more uh, call-in experience now. So maybe we'll have a, a chance to speak to some of our patrons and do a, a bit of a call-in show uh, and some looser content. So with Doom Scrolling, we will mix in f1 content with also just stuff from our lives and be a bit more relaxed and 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 take on some different topics as well obviously it is in and around f1 we'll just allow ourselves a bit more license to drift as it were so if you want to be a patron uh, please come and support us at patreon.com forward slash missed apex a fantastic show i think with chris medlin that was uh, so candid and and the way he was speaking about how he's a he's affected and how things how things roll and play out to him, not only with the media stuff recently, where the the media, the journalists became the focus of Twitter ire, but also, you know, the insights into how the processes work, asking the FIA for for information. It was, yeah, absolutely fascinating. And I hope we can get Chris on and do go and check out uh, Ad Hoc. That's not ad hoc. Pod hoc, isn't it? It's his uh, F1 podcast as well. Uh, they're great guys. And, and like I said, during the races, I do have him on tweet alert to make sure that I don't miss anything. So uh, upcoming, we've got some new shows, some topic shows, some discussions, a free reign because there are no restrictions of, of those pesky races getting in the way of us making content. Uh, Matthew Carter has said uh, early February he's going to come and and join us he's just uh, relocating at the moment um, but then he'll be with us but plenty to look forward to into the off season and there really isn't that much time between now and f1 launches and test sessions so we will be packed i think so stick with us here at missed apex podcast and wherever we see you next work hard be kind and have fun catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.